I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. Steve D's here with me, fresh off the back of the latest part of his interview with the Investor Way podcast. Go check that out on their channel or Spotify if you haven't already. It was really interesting. I enjoyed listening to it. Steve talking about various things in his portfolio. I guess some of it will be familiar to our listeners. Some of it, maybe not. I learned some bits along the way. But how are you doing, Steve? Yeah, not doing too bad, Steve, considering I chopped half my finger off uh, at the beginning of the week. Uh, That was a particular mistake with a chipping machine, Mm. not a chipper, uh, which got confused for uh, at work. They thought I'd put my hand in a chipper, which would have been a significantly uh, more damaging result. Uh, It was actually a chip-making machine. I slid it off the back of the guard, and I uh, now need a new fingerprint for anything that unlocks with a fingerprint because it's missing. Um... I've also managed to break my TV uh, by turning it on. It's got a big white line down it, so that sounds quite expensive. Although I have found out it's in warranty, and I switched it on today, and it's not there. But I'm still sort of half tempted to press on with the repair and just see what happens. But yeah, Investor Way number two out, Steve. I thought this was the better of the two. If you're going to listen to only one of them, you've only got time to listen to one. I would probably say listen to this one because it's more about my stocks and how I feel about my stocks I think you probably get a little bit more information out of it did you have a favourite Steve? of your stocks sorry or of the two interviews of, of the two interviews I liked the second one better I think they it was very nicely divided into the two different ones so one being sort of how you think about markets and how you think about investing and and a, a nice bit of backstory actually which I don't think I kind of knew all of especially some of the earlier bits I knew uh, I had a better idea of where you are now than kind of how you got there. Uh, so I probably learned more from the first one, but I found the second one more interesting because I enjoyed listening to you discussing the London Stock Exchange Group and talking about valuations on it and uh, some others too. Uh, I kind of forget sometimes, by the way, that you and I both own Southern Copper and then then a dividend shows up and I think, oh yeah, we own that. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? It's just like 25 quid or something hit my account on... Is it yesterday that came yep. in? Was that Southern Copper? Well, mine was yesterday, yeah. Yeah, just... Yeah, just 25 quid in the account. And it was really funny, actually. I was thinking about things what to spend it on, and I managed to stumble onto eBay and found you can get copper bullion for, like, 36 quid. Copper bullion? Something like that. I thought, would that be what you should spend the, the Southern Copper dividend on? And I quite like the idea of having a safe filled with bullion of copper. <laughs> so people think you're really rich, but really it's just, you know, you look like you've just been, like, smelting down stuff you've nicked from housing estates. Yeah, I mean, you look like you're kind of hoarding it for when electrification takes off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, come to me, Elon, when you want your copper. Well, Elon, Elon had an investor day recently, I think, actually, and uh, a bit like this show, he doesn't seem to have any plans to make any more cars or anything. But yeah. no, it's not gone well either, has it? That, that was really received very, very poorly. I mean, people were saying that was, you know, some. If you're struggling to sleep, have a listen to it. That's very un-Elon-like, isn't it? I mean, normally he says something mad and tries to distract you, and he's pretty good at it. But the idea that he would put you to sleep is. Uh, beyond me a bit we've got Berkshire Hathaway coming up where I literally was put to sleep a year ago in their um, uh, annual shareholder meeting I tried listening to it in a podcast and I got about half an hour in and then went to sleep and woke up and realised it had nearly finished 
but I, I wasn't very well at the time, in fairness. But you don't expect that from Tesla. Uh, my week's been kind of interesting. As of yesterday, my wife and child are not here. They're up in Scotland visiting his great-granny, her granny. Uh, that's the one remaining great-grandparent he has left, so he's... Well, I say he's keen to go and visit whenever he can. He's not really keen to do it. He's keen to do everything, basically. But uh, we try and get him there to visit when he can. And this seemed like the best time for uh, for a number of reasons. So I'm managing to... I'm learning what it's like, again, to be able to kind of get work done and stuff and not have a specific one-and-a-half-hour window in which I have to try and fit everything from the day in. That sounds good, Steve. I think that's... Uh, I wouldn't get too used to it, though, because I think they'll be coming back. They will be coming back. I'm trying to... I'm torn between two ideas. One is wanting to get so far ahead of work that I've got loads of free... Uh, well, not loads of free time, but as much free time as I can possibly generate to, uh, to hang out with him, which will be nice because it's also nearly the end of term here. And the other is wanting to sleep for as much as I possibly can, so I'm in a reasonably good position to try and do more stuff and uh, give her a rest, so... Attempting to balance those two ideas at the moment. Mostly leaning towards the work end at the moment, to be honest. I'm absolutely exhausted and it's last thing on a Friday because we waited another day so I could hear the results I wanted to hear before we did this show. Um, How's your portfolio doing? Portfolio is very up and down uh, at the moment. Mm. Mostly down a little bit, I think. But it does seem to be quite choppy. And I think one of the things that's moving that around is when I get those kind of choppy moves... It tends to be FX is moving something in one direction or another. Pound is strengthening or weakening against dollar, and that's kind of moving everything in the same go. That tends to be what's kind of doing mine. How's yours? Had a couple of middling days, Monday and Tuesday, but Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we've been off. Um, today, I'm up uh, 1.62% on the ISA, which is nice, and 3.44 on the capital incinerator, so they're booking the trend, they're booking the name. Um think i'm gonna have three new stocks to or maybe even four new stocks to add into that pie uh, i've been doing because i've been off most this week and i've not had an awful lot to do all the things i wanted to do i can't so i've done quite a lot of researching so i might have uh, four stocks to talk about at some point in the future but probably not quite ready to talk about them in any great detail now it's friday afternoon i haven't actually had a chance to look at my portfolio because i've been teaching since two i'm well up today uh, and I've just realised that. In fact, I've crossed back over into the overall green territory from, from really quite significantly red a couple of days ago. So I think mm. I must be up uh, on this week because I'm pretty sure I started it behind as a result of having you know, invested fairly recently into some stuff. So I guess that's sort of nice to hear. The Friday sell-off today is in short stuff by the sound of it. Mm. Sounds good. Steve, did you see the uh, the new Ford patent that came out this week? That was quite I interesting. I did not see the new Ford patent. I tend to swerve these kind of, no pun intended, I tend to swerve these kind of um, car news announcements. What have they patented, Steve? A very, very funny little patent, actually. I think it probably will make everybody smile at home, but they have uh, filed a patent that basically details how they will be programming their self-driving cars to drive away from consumers who stop paying the bills and drive back to base. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realise that. I, I knew there was quite a bit going on in their kind of autonomous um, stuff, but that's fun. It is fun, isn't it? I must admit, I sat there and I thought, this is terrible. And I thought I looked at it a bit more, but, it, but it's very funny. You fall behind on your car payment, you look out one day, and it's just like, <laughs> bye <Bye-bye." laughs> Yeah, I, I like it. Um, it's a fairly efficient way of trying to get these things to... I mean, that'll make people start caring about staying on time with their payments and stuff, won't it? 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I guess if you get the patent for it, then you know other people are going to have to license that idea off you, aren't they? Almost. So do you think they'll want to? I mean, do you think that's something there would be big demand for trying to license that off people? I guess the idea is it would sort of save them quite a lot in terms of trying to recover the car and so on. Yeah, well, I was thinking, what about, I mean, the risk of lending to somebody pretty much evaporates, doesn't it, if your car's just going to drive off if they don't pay? Um, you know, you, you don't have to worry about them paying or not paying if it's just going to, you know, return to base on its own if they don't. I think that's quite a, a good idea, really. Yeah, I might do that, or I might just let Paul loose on the back seat and then not pay and see if they want it back. Yeah, I'll put, like, um, one of those, like, blockers on the wheels to stop it moving. Yeah, that'd be interesting, wouldn't that, it? That, that would be interesting. Maybe there's still work to be done on that particular bit of tech then. Hmm. But that was interesting. What's been catching your eye this the, week? Oh, sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say, I, I did catch sight of a, a pretty interesting bit of Google. Sort of, I would call it news, but it's news and a conversation between a product manager and an analyst. So I'm just going to read it for you because it, it, it was it's basically about how Google feel about ChatGPT, which is the hot topic of the day. So uh, the analyst said... Um, uh, so basically, yeah, I might have some. So he's basically talking about he's got a few questions, really. So uh, as that relates to the large language model and ChatGPT in particular, do you think there's a threat to Google's core business? I'm sure Google hasn't obviously been sitting still and has been working on AI for some for quite a long time. I'm just wondering, are people overreacting to maybe the threat here? Anything you can help me out with here would be useful. And the expert, it was a product manager of Google, said, oh yeah, for sure. With respect to ChatGPT and let's say Google search, I think ChatGPT is definitely a fascinating technology, but in my opinion, it's not a threat to Google at this point in time. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first one is that you think about technology, Google has one of the best AI research labs in the world, similar to what OpenAI is. But in terms of technology, Google has something called Lambda that it has worked on for quite a few years. I don't know where that specific project is at this moment in time, but I'm pretty confident that Google has technology that matches what ChatGPT is and potentially surpasses it. So the second thing is now that their technology is equal, distribution matters. So that's quite interesting that. So Google are talking about how they basically, their distribution is currently 4 billion people uh, using Google search versus OpenAI. There's about a million people using it in the first week of um, ChatGPT launching, which was obviously one of the quickest to a million we've ever had. So deserves a little bit of respect. The expert also said that compute costs and compute load between AI and things like ChatGPT and types of models and traditional searches um, uh, are a lot heavier for people like um, ChatGPT. So he thinks that every search query that Bing uses will cost them around 200 times what a normal text search query would. So you're going to very quickly burn through cash there. But, Steve, the most important thing of the lot is they actually released um, market stats uh, to, to see kind of what impact Bing has had over uh, Google in this last month. And you, would you be surprised to hear that Bing is down in every medium. Bing's market share in desktop is down to 8.19%. Google's is up to 85.64%. In mobile, Bing is at 0.46%, which is down. Google is up at 96.71%. Uh, tablet, Bing is down to 4.57%. Google is up to 92.24%. And in, across all devices, Google's market share is up to 93.37%. And Bing's is down to 2.81%. So when we said it was all a fad, Steve, that is literally the hypiest month of hypey AI chat GPT crap we've ever gone through and Bing has completely collapsed. Bing's only use is to search for Google. 
Ah, <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's painful for Bing. I mean, to answer your question, yeah, that does surprise me, to be honest. I thought they might have got even some short-term kind of hype push on this. And the way Google search works is it's a very basic kind of bit of kit in terms of an interface, right? There's a box and you type some stuff in it. It's not complicated in any interesting way, but it is quite sort of intuitive. And then after that, the smart work goes on in getting you to look at the right things and click on the right things and advertise and so on and so forth. In the case of that, I thought, yeah, I thought Bing might have got a bit of a push here. ChatGPT does feel to me like, and I know you pointed this out in a tweet, it's very 2022 uh, technology, or at least it thinks it's very 2022 um, technology from what I was seeing of uh, an exchange it was having about watching films anyway. Yeah, it has no idea what the date is, does it? Which makes it very confusing So for anybody trying to search for something like relatively new. So, um, yeah, I just think it's useless at the moment. I don't, I don't see any point. I mean, we just had Google losing hundreds of billions of valuation over gaining market share in every category it's on. So um, I think that's probably something we shouldn't be particularly um, frightened of. But, Steve, we've got loads to cover. Do you want to start with one of yours? Uh, we can start with one of mine. Yeah, let's start with the one that I was waiting to see then. So Rightmove, a stock that you and I own and I was desperate to talk about with Paul, but he's unfortunately not here. Um, has been reporting its earnings today. It reported earnings for the full year, so let's talk about those then. So the revenue for the year was 333 million, which was up from 305 million, which I think is about a 9% increase. Earnings per share were 23.4p, up from 21.3p. Uh, membership was fairly flat, with the number of agents on their platform down slightly, and the number of builders on their platform, home builders that is, up. And the average revenue per advertiser was 11% higher, which was the second highest year it's ever had for growth. Uh, and it's guiding for more growth in 2023. So this was taking us to the end of 2022, that last year. Their year ends in December, like, like most years do. Um, they sent out 198 million in buybacks. This is a stock with, the, that makes about, uh, sorry, combination of dividends and buybacks. It gets you about a 4.5% return. And I was going to ask Paul about this and say, look, Paul, this is a company that has the kind of attitude that he wants which is we're going to take all of our kind of cash that we don't really know what to do with because our business doesn't take very much to run and we're going to fling it at shareholders we'll buy mostly by buying back stock but partly by dividends so uh, the dividends up for the year by around nine percent or so that all sounded like decent news shares were down two percent on the news because it was roughly in line with what was being forecasted and so on um there's a couple of things there that I suppose might be slight risks. There was some really interesting stuff, I thought, in the management commentary. But, Steve, what do you think about Right Move or any of that? It was surprising to see it do so well, really, um, especially off the back of we've had Taylor Wimpy and Persimmons reports come through. And Taylor Wimpy's report wasn't too bad. They've raised the dividend a little bit, but Persimmon have taken the Intel route and basically chopped three quarters of the dividend away. So um, it was it was interesting to see that uh, even despite this, right move is in a fairly decent position. I mean, we talked when we first talked about right move, we just said if the housing market uh declines right move will just do less well but it wouldn't even say that that's what they've particularly done they look they look pretty they look like they're in a pretty decent position to me obviously they're not that reliant on new homes being built but that is all part of the the broader market uh, especially with interest rates uh, flying you know major house builders reporting slowing and, and high cancellation rates it's interesting to see right move still just chugging along steve yeah chugging along is the thing it's sort of 9% or so growth uh pretty much across the board 
you might ask yourself whether you're happy with 9% growth, I suppose, from your 24 PE um, stock that you were buying. I mean, I think both you and I bought it at a bit less than a 24 PE, in fairness. But uh, thinking about it at today's prices, that's where that gets you to. The end of last year, of course, and the very tail end of last year, so included in these latest results, featured a lot of kind of uh, heavy work around interest rates, and we had some chaos in the mortgage markets as well as the sort of mini budget stuff was um, making headlines and driving mortgage rates well in some cases taking mortgages just off the market uh, completely but pushing rates of other ones up and that doesn't seem to have made that much difference to this company in terms of where it showed up because when we've talked about it before we've always said look the risk is a slowdown in the UK property market and does the UK property market currently look expensive yeah it kind of does to be honest rates are pretty low mortgages are pretty low so people buying houses for more it won't stay like that forever it can't stay like that forever this company's presumably gonna take a hit when that happens and it doesn't really and one of the things the CEO said to me uh, said not to me uh, to investors but I read uh, was particularly interesting it said while we remain alert to the ongoing economic uncertainty, right move is not materially impacted by the property market cycle other than in the most extreme circumstances. So they think then that they're going to kind of keep pushing on okay as a, a very good business unless something really, really kind of um, heavy happens to the property market, which I guess is, is good, I suppose. It's a secular grower rather than a property market cyclical thing. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what they are, isn't it? Which is, you know, I, I think we we pretty much nailed that when we we, we spoke about it. Um, so yeah, impressive, uh, impressive, really. Business still churning out loads of free cash, and like you say, spending it spending it on making people like Paul really really happy. Yeah, I mean, not Paul specifically, right? People like uh, I don't think Paul owns a stock, despite our best efforts of convincing him that it's really a passive income stock or something like that. One other thing that he said, which. I, I quite like because it's rare that companies that I own get to say things like this. There's the in increased inflationary backdrop is not expected to materially impact costs, uh, which does make sense. They don't have that high input from kind of raw materials and stuff. And we expect an underlying operating margin for 2023 of around 73%, uh, which is, I mean, that's, we're going to talk in a little bit about some kind of tech companies that are, I want to say immature, right? But they're further back in their kind of scaling and growing process. Rightmove is, is pretty much a mature business here. I mean, it's behaving like a mature business, right? Make money, ship it out to people because you don't have much else you can do. There are a couple of kind of growth areas that they pointed out with stuff like industrial property uh, listing or commercial property listing, I think, more accurately. Um, but leaving aside that thought for a moment, they are currently behaving like a mature business is quote-unquote supposed to uh, they make money they don't bother sitting around with it they send it back out to uh, investors in whatever way they think most appropriate whether that's dividends or buybacks or whatever but we sometimes think about these kind of growthier younger less mature uh, businesses and wonder well what are the margins going to look like in the end um, it's rare that I think either of us ever think yeah they're going to be about 73% operating margins and, and yeah. I think either of us would find it quite hard to meaningfully defend that if we ever did say that on the show it's, they've got to such a strange scale haven't they evidently where they just don't seem to need an awful lot of people to keep it keep it going they, they're on it must be on minimum staffing levels mm -hmm. you can't imagine they need you know uh, but they've always been a fairly lean business it's just recently they've just turned into this 
this super business. I think when you're modeling a growth story, you sort of sometimes put in 20 or something like that, and you really sometimes you do it through great teeth, and you think, well, probably we won't get anywhere near that. But putting in 70, Steve, you'd be like, that'd be like the stuff we used to laugh at on YouTube, like the pie in the sky. Like when it actually, when it gets 70% of the five trillion market, yeah, it's not gonna do that. And then right move's <laughs> just coming, right move's just coming soaked it up. I think it's one of those things that's like. I don't think you can take anything from it. I don't think there's anything to be learned from it other than that right move is, you know, as we said on a number of occasions, a, a really, really good UK business. Yeah, it'll be interesting. They have a change of guard coming up. Uh, in fact, I think that may have just happened, actually, in that uh, Peter Brooks Johnson, who was authoring the last report as CEO because that ran till the end of December, but I think the change happened in February, uh, in comes a new CEO then, we'll see how that kind of goes because this is a business that I think, well to my mind it fits into the category of anyone can run this thing because you don't have to do an awful lot to run it. It's got a, It uh, maintains its competitive position by way of a network effect, it doesn't take an awful lot of capital to run, all you have to do is just press the button that pays the dividend and stuff, uh, basically right. I quite like that as an idea that he's just sat there with like he's got a pen pot but he just uses the pens to press one of the two <laughs> buttons dividend or buyback yeah I like it uh, but that's pretty much it for right move. I was looking for things to dislike about this because we normally like to talk about kind of risks and downsides and stuff and we normally say the property market might go down quite a lot but we kind of deprived ourselves of that particular option when I was digging around um the only thing I could find was issues around complacency. I mean, I get the thought here. You fail to innovate, then you do eventually invite trouble on yourself. We don't need to point out kind of tech companies that have had dominant positions and kind of sat idle paying away dividends and buybacks and so on, which we're sort of loosely positive about this for. Um, but they are claiming to be innovative. They're claiming to be kind of moving things forward. Is there a danger that someone comes around and eats their lunch here? It doesn't strike me as obvious, but... There's always a chance. Uh, I don't think that I see anything on the particular horizon. I think it's there's nothing wrong with the right move app, and I think that's probably the big problem for for anybody who wants to come up, come along and disrupt it. It's like, well, what what are you going to... You know, what, what exactly is wrong with it? Do you know what's wrong with it as a service? What could you do better? And I think... Um, I don't really know anybody outside of the estate agents who complain about it, but they complain about it because they have to pay for something that they previously, you know, put on their stupid websites with their stupid names that were really difficult to remember, and you know they got your email address and phone call and never ever deleted it off the databases and probably sold all your data to third party people. So, uh, you know, that's a better right move is a better service than that. And if something comes along that's better than right move for the consumer, then I suppose that is even even better. But I don't see what that is. No. Uh, at the Two moment. quick thoughts on that, I guess. Once is uh, I was talking to ISA Investor a while ago now, actually, who kind of asked me, well, what is it that right move has or can do that can't just be done by sticking your house on Facebook Marketplace? And if enough of us decide to do it uh, and make that the place that people go to to go and look at houses. And I think the answer is not an awful lot. There are some things there that are uh, distinctively right moves uh, kind of added on uh, stuff, but nothing that I would kind of say, the main reason that I go there is clearly because that's where all the houses are listed, right? So why couldn't that be somewhere else? And it's a good question. I think the answer is not an awful lot, but that's kind of how network effect moats work from what I can see of it. I mean, I remember asking the same question of Facebook sort of back in 2000 and 
five or six or something of, of what do I want to be on this thing for? I can send people pictures, I can send them messages. It basically, at this stage, doesn't do anything else. But the reason I'm on this platform is because everybody else is on this platform. That's where all the people are in a certain way. And that, I think, is kind of the point of these sort of network effect moats. They can unravel. I mean, if people start going away, then then the whole thing starts coming down as quickly as it went up again. But it does kind of look to me like that's the answer to sort of ISIS question. Not an awful lot, but once you're set up in this situation, you have a kind of advantage that comes from that sort of network effect. Yeah, and I think the other thing is it's lack of distraction, isn't it? So when you're going on to Rightmove, you know you're going to be looking at houses, whereas you go into Facebook Marketplace and you, you probably end up getting distracted by whatever's happening. So, yeah, I don't think that's... It's not. It's a specialism, isn't mm. it? I think that people, when you're looking at a, a house, you want to be, you know, you want to be looking at a specialist app, so they're all laid out the same. You know, as you know how you know the listing's going to work. It's all uniform, and you really can get your sort of comparison hat on. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think Facebook Marketplace. God, I hope it never gets replaced. No, by Facebook I hope not. I, I mean, that'd be really bad for me as a right move shareholder. But um, to your point that estate agents hate it, I kind of that just makes me like it more. I I thought about this for a while because you mentioned this to me a while back that they uh, basically hate it I heard Buffett talking about Moody's once which he owns and he said look he basically hates Moody's because they really don't want to have to pay these people uh, for their credit rating thing but you kind of have to there isn't really a choice no one's going to lend you any money unless you have a credit score from uh, Moody's and um, uh, Standard and & Poor's and the other one Fitch uh, which isn't listed so I keep forgetting what it's called and, and he kind of sees that as a sort of business strength here of if people pay you money because they have to rather than because they kind of want to i mean that kind of indicates that you there's not a lot you're quite hard to kind of replace or disrupt yeah if you're paying somebody through sort of gritted teeth it usually means that they're either ripe for disruption or they've got a monopoly on the market that can't be disrupted mm. so i think that's probably that's probably what we're seeing there. fair enough what's on your tech agenda lately steve um, so, well, Salesforce reported on Thursday, oh, yeah. so I think uh, that would be a good one to go over. I've done quite a uh, quite a, a, a decent-sized deep dive into these earnings to try and get out as much detail as we can for people. Just on the on the whole, this this is pointless stuff that I think Salesforce are doing. It is my general take on it. It's like the market said show me margins you know you keep saying you've got margins show me margins the salesforce has just gone all right here you go but it doesn't matter whether it's a show me margins or the margins are actually there this business has always been performing well nothing has has changed in that regard but i'll give you the numbers steve see what you think so Wall Street wanted a dollar and thirty six in uh, EPS, and Salesforce gave you a dollar and sixty eight. So beat it quite handily. That actually was a non gap operating margin of twenty nine percent. That's when they sub off uh, the uh, stock based comp. That was actually up fourteen percentage points. Uh, net, uh, sorry, revenue. Uh, Wall Street wanted eight billion, and CRM delivered eight point three eight billion. So nearly eight point four billion. So Quite a handy beat over uh, what Wall Street wanted. So I've got how this is broken down for you. So uh, Salesforce basically has five main areas. Um, so the sales division grew revenue from 1.6 billion to 1.8 billion. That's 13% year on year. Service grew from 1.7 billion to 1.9 billion. That's also 13% year on year. 
platform and other. This is things like Slack and their little shop thing. Uh, that went from 1.4 billion to 1.6 billion. That's 15% year on year. Marketing and commerce uh, went from 1 billion to 1.2 billion. That's 13% year on year. And uh, data was the last one, went from 1.1 to 1.3 billion. That's 18% year on year. So uh, none of those in constant currency. Uh, I'll just give you them quickly in constant currency if you want them. So sales was up 16% constant currency. Service, 15%. Platform, another 18 Marketing and commerce, 16 And data, 20 So very, very strong across the board in all segments guidance was good as well steve uh, wall street wanted a dollar 32 and salesforce said have a dollar 60 uh, wall street wanted 8.05 billion in revenue salesforce said have 8.16 uh, so an extra 100 million on top full year guidance uh, wall street wanted five dollars 84 salesforce said had have seven dollars 12 and they wanted 34.03 billion in revenue and salesforce said you can have 34 and a half so an extra 500 million uh, at the lower point of their guidance as well they actually guided up to 34.7 which is about 10 percent implied growth and the rpo um remote uh, remaining performance obligations actually grew 12 percent to 24.6 billion that's 13% if we're going FX neutral. Uh, a couple of other things, Steve, that I saw. There's a 20 billion buyback to negate uh, stock-based compensation. Stock-based compensation is now falling from 10% of revenue to 9% of revenue. So that's very, very positive. The share can't actually decline this quarter, Steve. It's the first time that's ever happened. It declined 1.3%. Uh, and there's a new buyback. Uh, so there's going to be a bit more of that to come, I would think. I noticed Elliot Management put out a statement. They're going to take credit for this, Steve. Here's what they had to say. Elliot has been in close, substantive dialogue with Salesforce leading up to today's earnings statement. Salesforce's set of announcements today represent progress towards regaining investor trust. The acceleration of margin targets, commitment to responsible capital return priorities, creation of a business transformation committee and the disbanding of the merger and acquisition committee are the necessary steps forward. These steps are consistent with our recommendations and we believe they will help restore value at Salesforce. Benioff, he was uh, very bright. He's always very bright on the conference call. But here's a few things that he came out with, Steve. So as you can see from our results, we had another strong quarter. Improving profitability is our highest priority. And that really showed up this quarter. Our goal is to make Salesforce the largest and most profitable software company in the world. So watch out, right move. Um, he said, now we immediately put into place an accelerated transformation plan with four areas, um, short-term and long-term restructuring of the company, improving profitability and productivity, prioritizing our core innovations and a deeper and even stronger relationship with our shareholders. Uh, just a few little bits on that. So he said, um, first, we're reigniting our performance culture and doubling down on our accountable management of our sales organization. As you're about to hear from Brian, as you know, beginning in January, we also initiated a headcount reduction and were significantly consolidating our real estate footprint. Second, uh, we're closely scrutinizing every dollar of investment and resource and are very focused on driving operational excellence and automation across the full business. 
Third, our amazing engineering team is focused on integrating our acquisitions and prioritizing our core innovations that are driving customer success. And finally, as we set in motion longer term structural improvements, we're working with Bain on a comprehensive operating and go-to-market review to ensure a high degree of accountability. Our board is forming a new business transformation committee, which I have joined myself, and we have fully disbanded our M&A committee uh, as well to reflect our new focus. I thought this was a pretty good report, Steve. Uh, beat on every regard. Very, very chipper. Stock was up about 12% the next day as well, which took me from red to green. Um, anything in there that you didn't like the look of? No, nothing that I didn't like the look of particularly. Um, I'm a little bit, I suppose, suspicious of a couple of things that are connected uh, to each other here. Exactly what we need the creation of a business transformation committee uh, for, I'm not quite sure. I can get, I get that maybe you want to do away with the M&A stuff because the M&A stuff is uh, risky at the moment, we might say. I also quite like the fact that it feels like the way with these things, and I'm, I'm still quite new to all of this, that with activist investors like Elliott Management, uh, they sort of shout at companies a bit and then companies often do the things that they tell them to do. Think Nelson Peltz at Disney. Uh, and then what you have afterwards is a good amount of the company saying, well, yeah, that's that's what we were going to do, isn't it, before you started shouting. We were going to do that anyway. And the activist investors going, another job done. Well done, us. Away we go. Well, it's worse than that, isn't it? I think it's worse than that because th these results are like, you know, you you can stick an implied margin in if you want to see pretend, you know, if you want to see profits. Mm. The, 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 the diff if they actually turn that into into profit or or don't turn it into profit, it's, it's irrelevant at the moment, isn't it? I mean, if you're saying to me Salesforce now has to become a mature business and they have to, you know, show you free cash flow and show you operating cash flow and show you profits on the bottom line then it's kind of like a big whoa who cares it doesn't matter it was already there so to sort of like walk off and say we job done boys elliot management is the winner it was just <laughs> it's a massive circle jack yeah uh, so we had operating margins of i think you said 29 percent, which is non-gap yep uh so that was uh losing stock-based comp from the thing mm. right i mean that's uh okay but i mean leaving that thought aside for a moment that it does get you to the kind of operational area that we associate with um software companies i think operating margins tend to be sort of around that area or slightly higher so i mean that shows you that salesforce kind of can do it when it puts its mind to it i'd be interested to see how that develops going forward if that margin gets much bigger it starts to get kind of past what i might have been kind of vaguely modeling for uh, for this as a, a business and that's that's interesting and good to see it gets interesting i think if they can meet that revenue guide that they gave us last mm. year so if they get into 50 billion in revenue with 29 percent even non-gap op margins share count coming down steve this looks this looks pretty undervalued to me i think um they're actually guiding for only 27.7 percent margins i think it was off the top of my head um for the next quarter uh, so whether there is some oddity in the billings there or not i forgot to lock there, there may be some you know different different types of billings in that in that area or lower margin billings maybe um 
but it's still five percentage points higher than Wall Street was expecting. So, uh, and I think there's more to come in terms of profitability because mm. a lot of these people that they've let go, they'll still be paying some kind of restructuring fee and right sizing the real estate. That's not cheap. Um, so there, there's definitely more profitability to come from sales. It's a bit sad that they're disbanding the M and A committee. I understand that that's not flavor of the month at the moment, but that just means prices are really good and there's a lot of companies in that money incinerator pie that I think would be great bolt-ons to Salesforce. I think I, I did see uh, a couple of people on uh, Twitter saying uh, this is most companies come with this kind of idea of building like a new calendar or something, getting to a 1,000 or 10,000 users and selling themselves to Salesforce. So <laughs> if the m and committee is disbanded, then that idea is in, in dire straits. Mm, so there's there's at least some unfortunate entrepreneurs trying to come up with something different here then. Yeah, they're going to need to sell it to somebody else, aren't they? Yeah, Berkshire Hathaway will have them. They, they're well, in the business for buying calendar apps. Yeah, maybe monday.com. <laughs> um, so steady growth across the board then from all those various segments that you mentioned. It's all sort of in the, what we might loosely call the 15 to 20% range. Uh, that's, I guess, kind of encouraging to see, right? I mean... You like seeing things all moving forward together. One of the things, one of the reasons that Google kind of came under pressure is because it is, to a large extent, Google. Uh, and anything that were to disrupt that, very, very difficult though that would be, would be kind of devastating for Alphabet. But I'm not sure how the revenue breaks down here with Salesforce. But lots of different segments kind of um, moving forward in, in reasonable fashion together. Yeah, I don't think Salesforce is the same as Google. I think Google's a lot more cyclical mm. than we probably gave it credit for uh, last year or whatever. I think Salesforce is a little bit different. Salesforce, I always think, is a little bit like Ivy. It kind of gets its sort of like roots in uh, every part of uh, whatever mm. it's growing up, uh, and that makes it very, very difficult to rip out. And uh, I mean, I have ripped out a Salesforce product before, and I can tell you it was bloody difficult and we didn't we hardly used it for from half of the features it had so imagine these people who are using all five products and then decide to switch to somebody else i don't know if i'd fancy that i don't know if i'd fancy that at all but i think that's it's more isn't it it's more is that it is incredibly difficult to remove and it's yep. pretty unique in in the sort of like whole service offering that 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 it has so um, yeah i think it's an exciting one moving forward steve is it something that you think you could you could buy Gosh, I've thought about it. I've thought about it a few times. I I do kind of use some of its products, but I sort of used them when I was thinking about this earlier because they're kind of foisted on me, not because I'm a, a great believer in them particularly. I don't choose to use Slack. The organization I work with uses Slack, and therefore I use Slack. I also use Discord. Do I have a sense of which one I'd prefer to use? Not really. Some of the ones that we, uh, some of the organizations I'm with use Telegram for kind of internal communications because i think you could they think you can do some sort of uh kind of nesting groups in it or something i don't have a clue so i this is a product that i kind of use and it's fine um i also get that once you're into this you would be unlikely to get out of it again because moving everything across to a different uh system looks like a lot of work especially for kind of training people to use different things as well so I see the force of it, and I own um, a Salesforce-like business, which is Guidewire, uh, and I live in fear that they will come after Guidewire some of the time. Uh, it's quite the reason I don't own one of the other ones, but it's I sort of think maybe. Um, I want to say if it hadn't had that big run-up, that's probably a lie, uh, to be honest. It jumped about 15% after these earnings, right? 
It did, yeah, it's down a little bit today though. It was last time I looked, it dropped back about 2% or something like that. Fair enough. Um, it may well still be good value here. Um, I could definitely see my way towards thinking that. Could I see my way towards buying it? It gets a lot easier when it starts turning into... Um, I know you said you, you can kind of pencil in the margins if you like, but getting some, uh, seeing them and having confirmation of what they are does make it that bit easier, and that's, I guess, why the stock is going up. Hmm. Still 40% off its highs, Steve. It's still a long way from where it was. Mm, that's, what's that, nearly a double then uh, from here if you can get it back to its highs, but maybe. Uh, you own it, right? I do, yeah. Uh, my average price is, uh, well, I'm just looking, it is up 0.24 today. So my average price is about $190. So you'd be getting it cheaper than I was today. Unfortunately, <laughs> I've got 6 or 7% positive, or fortunately, 6 or 7% positive FX. So, uh, so it sweetens the deal a little bit for me. Cool. Uh, should we talk about another big company? Sure. Here's another big company that reported some... Uh, it's got lots of different segments and it reported some earnings in them. Berkshire Hathaway. This is always interesting. No one really cares what Berkshire Hathaway does earnings-wise. What they care about is what Warren Buffett's saying. But here is what the kind of um, earnings looked like. Revenue from the year was $302 billion. That was up from $276 billion. EPS, well, they like adjusting things as well. But here's the unadjusted EPS. With all that revenue, they managed to lose $10.36 a share. This is per uh, B share, not per A share, which is... I didn't bother working it out for A shares because it isn't relevant to anyone. Uh, previously, they made $39 a share. If you uh, remove out the effect of all their portfolio moving around because they have to run that through the income statement and the fact that a bunch of their stocks have gone down uh, weighs on their net income, even though in many ways it's not, a, in every way, it's not a kind of cash charge. They haven't sold any of these things. They still have them. They're still kind of sat there. I make it that they made probably around $21. Uh, in profit when I try to add it back. Where'd that come from then? So insurance underwriting uh, was a 90 million loss this time, mostly due to worse car insurance stuff. I think that might be partly inflationary. When we do our episode on inf uh, insurance companies, and we will one day, maybe, who knows, when Paul's not around, oh, he's not around now, but when, when we stop finding things that we're interested in earnings-wise, uh, we'll talk about why inflation is generally bad for insurance companies. It makes repairs more expensive, makes replacements more expensive, makes everything else more expensive. That wasn't something that was immediately obvious to me until kind of quite recently. Uh, but insurance investment income was 6.4 billion versus 4.8 billion. That's because higher interest rates, basically, they keep that float partly in uh, bonds and T-bills because you can't just go and lump your entire insurance float into stocks or on Tesla and then find you haven't got any money to pay stuff out. So higher rates on that basically did better. Uh, Railroad did exactly what it did last year, almost exactly. Uh, higher revenue per unit versus lower volumes and higher fuel costs. Utilities business was $3.9 versus $3.6 billion. And the manufacturing services retailing stuff, so basically sees candy, uh, brought in $12.5 billion all by itself, uh, mostly sold to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Uh, so 12.5 billion versus 11.1 uh, before so all of that stuff that big segment brings in sort of quite a lot there uh it was mostly kind of fine buffett described his special source if paul was here he'd be telling you it was about dividends it wasn't about dividends it was the opposite of that um he said that people who don't like buybacks are economic illiterates um and it was generally quite a fun report it's fine they'll keep doing the same thing next year it's not like the company doesn't have loads of cash it's not like the stock's terribly expensive it never is it's never terribly cheap either because 
you know full well that they're not going to do certain things. One of the things they're not going to do is blow themselves up. Another thing they're not going to do is grow massively either. It was a pretty interesting take. I sent you a YouTube video midweek, Steve. I don't know if you had a chance to watch it yet, but yep. it, was, it, it was quite funny to see that uh, in the video, who thou, thou shall not be named, managed to say that this is definitely showing that Buffett is interested in dividend-paying companies uh, when you only had to read the report to realise that that's really not the only thing he's interested in. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I mean, the cash pile, Steve, back up uh, another to 130 billion even though he spent a little bit of it recently hadn't he on uh, was it Allegheny that they, did they buy that with yep cash? They bought Allegheny with cash and it's back up to essentially where it was before um, mm. do you think there's something you think he's looking for something else or? Uh, it's kind of tough to tell isn't it I mean some of the acquisitions recently have been sort of unspectacular uh, things there's not been another let's add a massive new uh, kind of big parts of our um, portfolio. Before Allegheny, it was some natural gas pipes, which has turned out to be a really good investment. It's been buying a load of Occidental, and that's been making its way up there, but uh, I don't think there's anything massive on the horizon here, but I do wonder, I always sort of wonder with the, the cash building up in this and exactly kind of what might what might come of that. Um, yeah, the point about dividends is is not kind of lost on me. I'm fascinated, by the way fascinated by the way people see what they kind of want to see uh, when it comes to thinking about Buffett on this yeah absolutely I just sort of like I know he wants a bulletproof balance sheet but I wonder how much of like 120 billion is probably too much because <laughs> if he wants to go and buy a bank or something crazy like that when you know when the next financial crisis hits I reckon 120 billion would buy a few of them the way they're levered up at the moment so yeah. unless he wants to go and buy Silvergate he could probably get that for about 58 I think it's 12 Two pen, was it two pence on there or twelve pence on there? I can't remember. They've also got fifteen percent um, corporate bond out at the moment. See that they're trying to share up their balance sheet with. And I don't, I don't think there's many people interested in that at the moment. Uh, no, last lost... company I saw with one of those was Matalan, um, yeah. which is basically bust. And a good sign that, incidentally, this low-cost Costco model of uh, charge people a quid to shop there and then sell them stuff for less doesn't work for everything. No, not for rubbish clothes. Um yeah, so that was that was interesting. Steve. I was I, I sort of I, I read the letter. I had a look through the earnings. I haven't listened to uh, anything he's had to say on it uh, yet. But I didn't really think there was uh, from what I've from from the other people's analysis. I didn't think there was an awful lot in this one. I did see that um, somebody tweeted their, their, their retweeted their tweet from the last uh, earnings call and said uh, no. This is the worst earnings call <laughs> I've ever had in terms of information from, from Buffett. So why do you think he's keeping his cards close to his chest? I think that's the natural way that they have of doing things now. I mean, Buffett tends to not be a big fan of broadcasting what they own. And in fairness, I sort of find that admirable. Compare that to Kathy Wood, who is busy telling you whether or not anyone's listening anymore, at what she's buying, what she's selling all of the time. She very much plays with her hand kind of face up. Buffett, I think, if I were in Buffett's shoes, I would find it very tempting uh, to just say, when somebody asked me, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about buying a load of this stuff, or we just bought a load of this stuff, uh, and then watch the price go. Because, you know, you could truthfully say, uh, yes, we've just made a massive investment in uh, Visa uh, or something. 
um, and and watch everyone go and pile themselves into a visa as we go, and and then just wriggle out of it again. Get Mark Millard doing something for once, just for a laugh. Yeah, just, <laughs> just see what see what weird stuff you can get people to follow you into. Mm, I kind of like that though. Is, uh, oh yeah, people were saying the other day there was an interview with Todd Combs. That's what I meant to say. They weren't managers and. After that, people said they like, kind of like worked out the the Berkshire Hathaway formula for buying stocks. So they had trading because uh, he talked about stocks that were trading under a fifteen PE, or sorry, at a fifteen PE, which people confused to mean not under, which was clearly wrong, um, and is going to be with I think ninety percent conviction in a better place in five years' time, and has a fifty percent chance to compound at seven percent going forward. Okay, so that solves for a few things. And people thought, great, that is it. That is the Buffett formula. And then you look at Berkshire's portfolio and it's got Amazon in it, which that's never been true of that. It's got Snowflake in it. It's absolutely never been true of that. I don't know that it's ever been true of Stoneco particularly. It may be true of Stoneco now, but it wasn't when they bought it. Uh, the, the idea that that's how they pick stocks to buy is, I mean, it looks like a straightforward look at that portfolio tells you that's not true. Yeah, it was the same with the video that I sent you midweek where they uh, said that um, Buffett will never buy anything that's diluting. I think, well, mm. has he not looked at Snowflake <laughs> and uh, Amazon for a long time? Because it probably like trebled in share count since the last time uh, since the last time he was interested by it, especially Snowflake. I think stock-based comp for Snowflake was about 30% of revenue, never mind profits. So, yeah, interesting one. Steve, shall I do what? Yep, I was going to say, enough of this boring stuff. Tell me about something more interesting. Well, this one was another good report, really, from Okta. It was up quite a bit on the back of it. It actually did better than Salesforce at the close, but I'll, I'll give you um, some uh, some rundown of their stats. So this was their Q, uh, Q4, so it was the end of their full year 23. Uh, so revenue was... Um, 510 million and that's up 33% uh, of which subscription revenue so recurring revenue was 495 million that's up 34% uh, remaining performance obligations of about 3 billion that's up 12% um, non-gap gross margin Steve of 78.9% non-gap op margin of about 9% this is when they were subbing off stock based comp again Um Dollar-based net retention rate, we like that one, 120%. Um, that means that their customers are spending essentially an extra 20% on top of what they spent the year before. Free cash flow margin, Steve, of 14.1%. That's the highest it's ever been. Um, they do rule of 40 for you as well, so you can see that. So that's revenue growth um, and free cash flow margin. That's 46% at the moment, but that's actually fell 16 percentage points. Uh, total customers was 17,600, up 17%, and customers spending over £100,000 with them was up 27% to 3,930. So uh, revenue, Steve, for them has grown about 37% and um, Kager over the last three years. Uh, looks a pretty strong business to me free cash flow margins gone from about negative 5.3 a couple of quarters ago to 14.1 percent um this is another one of those companies steve that's sort of turning the screw on uh, profitability you're starting to see cash on the bottom line uh, they're even trying to get a bit of sort of net profitability um the guidance was to grow um, by about another 17% year on year. Felt a little bit sandbagged to me. Um, and EPS, they guided for about 30 cents. Mm. 
uh, again non-gap but it was about 21 cents more than wall street were expecting um looks pretty good to me i think chris hill told us when he was on the show that he bought this one pretty much at the top uh it's nowhere near getting back <laughs> to the top but it looks a lot better than it did a few months yeah, ago. yeah and that gives him a chance to keep buying it right if he bought at the top someone had to buy it at the top right no reason it shouldn't be uh chris hill particularly so growth of 17 percent going forward that seems i Seems quite a bit less than the sort of 33%. You said they were getting 120% dollar-based net retention here, right? So, in a sense, it's kind of growing at that just sort of by pushing prices or adding on bits or something like that, right? So, that feels like... That, to me, feels like quite the slowdown. Um, the market liked this very much for some reason. I can see you would like the past-looking bit, but if I didn't know better, that guidance would be kind of off-putting to me. Yeah, and the reason is because I think a lot of tech companies are doing headcount um, reduction now, and oh, that is where you know Octa's breakfast is, isn't it? Is where all of the mm. uh, all of the tech workers, all the identity software, um, basically doing identity software for those sorts of companies. So I think they're expecting a, a slowdown in headcount, um, and probably the uh, dollar-based net retention. I would expect that to to go with it. I think this is a, a I would call this a fair weather economy stock, mm. but actually still performing pretty well. I think the reason it went up so much is because it had fallen so much um, over the last couple of, uh, at least the last couple of quarters. I mean, I'm just looking at the year to date now. It was 180 uh, at its high point, and it fell 70.72%. So I think the thing here is that it's not falling, it's not uh, collapsing in terms of a business as much as the market expected so it's been on a steady climb from its lows which was around the november time it's up 90.33 percent from there but obviously you know when you fall 17 go up 90 that's nowhere near where you was before mm. interesting one to me steve though is it one of the stock you've used this stock before i believe so is this one of the ones that interests i haven't you? do and i feel the same way i feel about um Salesforce to be honest I think it's pretty good I feel like there's stuff to come here there's a big gap between those gross margins and those op margins at the moment so 70 near basically 79 in terms of gross margin and 9% in op margin just remind me where all that's going for the time being it's pretty much all going in sales marketing yeah. and stock based comp essentially that's kind of interesting I guess so it'd be interesting to try and model a bit further forward you said earnings Per share were about thirty cents. That's what they're uh, guiding. Thinking, sorry, yeah. guiding. Uh, yeah, thirty cents. Yeah, guiding for you. Uh, so okay, if you think that's what a nine percent up margin looks like, you can sort of triple that to get your way to ninety. It still leaves you fairly expensive, but growing at sort of seventeen percent becomes becomes interesting if you think it can hold on to that position, and it kind of looks like it can. There's some decent decent strength here, right? Yeah, uh, to me, this looks like an acquisition target. For Beat me to I it. I was going to say, what's the market Brown, cap on this? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure what it is at the moment. I, when I bought it, it was under uh, it was under ten billion. So it's in the money incinerator. I'll just have a Which look. Which does make it sound 13, yeah, yeah, thirteen point seven three billion. So this is uh, this is not a, a lot for uh, people like Tom Bravo who've been going around and hoovering companies like this up it's whether they'd be allowed to have that go through because they bought ping recently um which is another identity uh, software so they perhaps wouldn't be allowed to get that through but there's companies like palo alto there's a with even maybe crowdstrike might fancy it uh, whether they've got the the money to do a deal like that or you know whether whether octa would be interested in the shares but i feel like there's bigger i feel like there's 
we're due to have a big security company soon. Um, and I think Opta would be one of the companies uh, that would make it kind of into that big big security company. I've got another one, Steve, if you want to hear a quick rundown of another one that would probably make that big security company. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so I had a quick look at uh, Zscaler or Zscaler. Mm. Um, that's another one. So uh, in this kind of like security kind of cybersecurity kind of bracket, uh, this one grew uh, revenue at 52% year on over year. So it's 387.6 million. This is their second quarter, sorry. Um, so billings grew 34% year over year to 493.8 billion deferred revenue is over a billion grew 46% year on year uh, a gap net loss of 57.5 million uh, compared to a gap net loss of 100.4 million on a year over year basis so they've halved the losses essentially uh, non-gap net income of 57.6 million if you want to sub off all the stock based comp um, so yeah few interesting bits and pieces in here so they generated about 90 million in cash uh, which is about 23 percent of what they brought in in revenue so a pretty decent margin there um free uh free cash flow projection was for to bring in another 62.8 million um which is another sort of 16 percent of revenue um cash and cash equivalents of about 2 billion on the uh, on on the balance sheet at the moment uh, on a company that is worth at the moment, uh, 17 billion, so it's a 15 billion enterprise value. It looks a pretty interesting stock to me, Steve. I think it's coming down to a decent valuation. It's another one of those that's fallen massively off its highs. It's down about 52.41% just on the one year basis. Um, heavy spike in the middle where it got to 313 quid it's down 61% from there uh, market hated this Steve mainly because uh, there was a few little bits in the report that were pretty bad um, billings only grew at 34% and these are going to suffer with the same sort of uh, problem that Okta is is that basically the sales cycles for them are lengthening a little there's not as much headcount and they report that there's a lower deal close rate um, so the guidance actually implied for about minus 9% in Q&Q billions, um, which is, uh, you know, not a worry if you think that, you know, we're not going to go into a massive deep sort of tech recession. You think we're going to accelerate out of it, then this is probably just going to be maybe a blip. Um, but yeah, I think billings is the reason it fell 12%. I don't think it's losing market share to any of its competitors. This is one of these that is uh, directly in competition with Palo Alto, which is a mm. which is a, a big beast in the sector. Uh, Palo Alto obviously has a larger installed base to, of clients that it can kind of land and expand and upsell to, um, whereas Zscaler is still kind of uh, Zscaler is still trying to to do the landing. So it looked okay to me. If I would say, if this is going to be a blip, then I would say this might be one that you could pop on your radar. It's a really tough company to model because there isn't a, there isn't really any company in this space that's operating, you know, showing operating leverage. So it's really difficult to figure out exactly what this would, this would be able to churn out for you. But I mean, do you think this is a business that would be, I mean, we talked about right move at the beginning, but do you think this is a company that could churn out right move level margins eventually? I mean, even fifty percent would be incredible. But this doesn't seem these none of these cybersecurity businesses seem like something that needs millions and millions and millions of staff. No, you mentioned it has a big competitor, namely uh, Palo Alto. When I looked 
might be a few months ago now actually palo alto shares look quite cheap at one point they look like they would had quite the the fall for what i took to be an industry leader in this i'm this is high on my list of things that are kind of outside of my investable um, circle of competence. But when I think about this sort of thing, I sort of think, okay, what are margins going to look like? Clearly, cybersecurity is a growing space. Clearly, there's going to be some winners in this. The question is, is it going to be one of those things where everybody fights each other? And if it's just kind of them and Palo Alto in their particular part of the the domain, that could work quite nicely. You would end up with something like a MasterCard Visa uh, type thing. If it's going to be the case there's loads of different uh, cybersecurity um, companies and stocks busy battling each other, then you'd probably end up with something a bit more like an airline, which is uh, not so much with the operational leverage and the fuel costs and stuff, but the idea that everyone's busy fighting everybody to add incremental people, because if you have operating leverage going on, it doesn't cost you anything to kind of, or you, anything you make off another customer pretty much goes straight through to the bottom line. So you can kind of almost give it away. But um, that, I guess, is the kind of thing I haven't yet managed to patch together yet. I haven't quite worked out in this space. And this is quite a basic thing. It's because I haven't tried hard enough. Work out who's competitive, who's competing with who, who's competing with who, and who's who's competitor uh, is what I was kind of after here. Yeah, Palo Alto is definitely, you are right, is the big mm. the big one in the sector. It's a 60 billion uh, market cap at the moment. And it's actually the first time this quarter, because it had positive earnings this quarter, it's the first time I think it's ever had a PE ratio. So yeah. uh, unfortunately, there'll be quite a number of people who look at this and go, what, it's overvalued, because its PE ratio is currently 2,478. Uh, but obviously that is a fairly meaningless metric if you believe that at some point in the future Palo Alto is going to be able to slam its arm down on the table a bit like Salesforce has done really and said here's what you know here's what you could have won and there's there's a deep kind of truth to that but there's also a sense of I really don't care if people think that makes it overvalued the more people there are saying that kind of thing the better it's going to be for me basically absolutely i'm quite happy to go fish where people aren't fishing i'm not sure palo alto specifically is where i want to be uh fishing but the more people there are misjudging stocks by running them through kind of basic screeners and saying no 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 all the time i think a lot of investing is about saying no and if it's works what works for them that's great but it also is making my life that bit easier because other people aren't pushing prices up because they're not seeing something there that's Maybe just one step further than than hmm. popping some numbers into a table. I feel like Palo Alto has the right kind of investors. It's one of those stocks that got really high during COVID, but is actually now only down about 7.5%. So it looks like it's got investors uh, that are sort of thinking long term about this i mean it didn't rise it didn't rise as high as as many of the others it was it was up from peak to trough <laughs> he says not much only 231 percent looking at the chart um but it's <laughs> it stayed there as well which is kind of testament to uh, a good quality uh, business cool well we've crossed the hour mark in quite uh, a nice fairly relaxed fashion it felt like anyway so did you have anything else steve before we wrap up Nope. Great. Well, then, in that case, that was our show. We'll be back next week talking about yet more earnings, probably, uh, and yet more things that are going on in the stock market. But for now, thanks very much for listening, and we will see you then.